0: This is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on 90.7 KPFK, talking about what Trump is actually doing, not just what he's tweeting. Today we'll talk about Bernie's foreign policy. In 2016, he ran on domestic issues almost exclusively. This time around, he's going to say more about foreign policy. A lot more. David Kleon will explain. But first... Medicare for all, a Green New Deal, free college tuition, a $15 minimum wage. And how about adding daycare for all to the progressive agenda? Trump Watch starts right now. Childcare for all. That's Katha Pollitt's proposal. Of course, she's a poet, essayist, and award-winning columnist for the nation. Her most recent book is Reclaiming Abortion Rights. It's out now in paperback. We reached her today in Manhattan. Katha, welcome back.
1: Hi, John. Thanks for having me on the show.
0: Well, on Sunday, the New York Times put you on the front page of their opinion section with a piece arguing for universal daycare. That would help a lot of people. How many people are we talking about here, and who are they? Well, uh,
1: it's interesting. Um, 86%. Of women between the ages of forty and forty four which is kind of a, the limit uh have kids um so really the vast majority of women do have children um, and uh, uh contrasted with thirty percent of Americans with a college diploma um, so very i mean very important you know not to be saddled with a lot of college debt it's so important it's important not just for the students but for their parents and uh it causes them to uh, you know forego moving on in life for some of them but um i mean i know people who are 40 and paying off their their college debts but childcare really does affect more people and also and it has very very big social Effects not being able to not being able to find childcare or afford childcare has huge social effects.
0: And childcare is expensive. How how expensive is it these days?
1: Well, this is so fascinating. Uh, childcare is as expensive as college. Um, it's quite amazing, according to the people at the Economic Policy Institute. Um, which have state-by-state tables for every state. In Alabama, which is a very low-income state, it costs $5,637 a year for an infant and an only slightly less daunting $4,871 for a four-year-old. And that is uh, uh, only a third less than the cost of in-state tuition at a four-year college. Um, and you can just go through the tables, and it's pretty much the same. For example, New York, my state, $14,144, or double the cost of a year of college. So you can see that it's re- uh, this is why uh, only a small minority of families can find childcare affordable. And that means affordable means they pay 10% or less of their income for it.
0: Of course, people don't have to spend a lot of money on child care maybe the grandmother can take care of the kid or maybe a neighbor will do it for a few bucks
1: yeah well grandma she's uh she's she's great if you've got one and she wants to do this um but you know the way things are these days um grandma might still be working or grandma might be taking care of great grandma um so <laughs> It's it's not something you can count on, but very, you know, good luck to you if you have one. There's some family daycare that is great. Uh, my daughter was in family daycare with a person in the neighborhood who was wonderful, and she had all the certificates you need, and she was very knowledgeable about child care, and she had a, uh, a whole room dedicated to her little in-home daycare. Um, but you might get someone who is much less good and who just puts the kid in front of TV and who feeds them not uh healthy food and who doesn't doesn't most important doesn't really know what to do in a medical emergency. I um, mean every year a couple of kids die in this kind of care. Um so it's not something that you might not see that you should uh that's uh, an automatic substitute and mostly people choose it because it's cheaper, although not always for that.
0: Uh, and you say the child care crisis has a huge effect on women. Tell us about that.
1: Well, um, when women can't find child care, affordable child care, they tend to drop out of the workforce. And this is one reason why the um, rate of women participating in the workforce is has stagnated. Um, another thing that happens is that it's so expensive that a woman thinks, oh, my God, I'm spending all my all my salary on child care. That doesn't make any sense. And here I want to say, you know, I know this is a little bit abstract of a point, um, but the truth is that the child care payments are also the father's responsibility. And it's really wrong to count, you know, Uh, child care solely against the woman's income as if, you know, she has to find a substitute for herself. Um, But that is the way a lot of people think about it. Um, But the other thing is that um, when a woman, a woman might think, oh, I should quit my job. And maybe that makes sense immediately. But the effects of staying out of the workforce for a considerable time never go away it lowers your social security payments. it makes it harder for you to get your next job it um it uh means your skills are rusted you lose contacts. and these days you know people don't talk about this so much but these days with most w- mothers even of small children in the workforce being one who stays at home is a much more isolating experience than it was when everybody was staying at home and you had you know you could go over to your friend's house Um, so I think there are a lot of reasons why women want to stay in the workforce and cannot do so because of the dearth of affordable quality childcare.
0: You know, everything that we're talking about here is not exactly new. Hasn't Congress ever thought about this before? Has Congress ever taken up government funding for childcare at some point?
1: Well, it's funny you should ask that in 1971, uh, President Nixon vetoed a very popular bipartisan bill to uh, create the um, Comprehensive Child Development Act, uh, which was popular with both parties, and he said um, it committed the vast moral authority of the national government to the side of communal (laughs) approaches to child rearing. Uh, And, you know, you see the little... uh, appeal to anti-communism there yeah um yeah and uh who was the person who encouraged him to do this because he was hesitating pat buchanan um yeah uh and pat buchanan apparently wanted the phrase to be the sovietization of american (laughs) children um but i guess nixon drew the line at that um and that was that was it that was the end of the whole discussion and that was uh, almost 50 years ago um, so it's taken a long time for this really to come back in a major way as a policy issue.
0: Well, if progressives were to take up your proposal of daycare for all, it seems like at least some of the white working class people who voted for Trump could probably use help with childcare.
1: Yes, I think a lot of them can. I think those are the ones who are um, stuck in that valley of needing to work and not being able to work. Um, and also, there are a lot of single mothers now. There are a lot of single mothers in the white working class, um, as well as the black working. I mean, everywhere. Um, but you'd think that this would, you know, to the waitress mom, remember the waitress mom who yeah. was supposed to be, you know, a big political desiderata a couple of years ago, Uh, I think this would appeal to them. And, you know, childcare is also, um, it's good for everybody. It's one of these things that's good for everybody. Um, And it would provide a lot of jobs. That's another thing. It would provide a lot of jobs for people who uh, want to work and who have those skills. And um, there's just no downside to it at all, except, of course, it would cost a lot of money.
0: After the New York Times published your piece on the uh, cover of the Sunday Opinion section, almost a thousand people commented before comments were closed. Let me ask you about a couple of the most interesting. Uh, One person wrote... Too often, what is couched as empowering women is really powering the economy. We want everybody into the workforce now, even if you just gave birth eight weeks ago. Whatever happened to choice, including the legitimate choice of caring for your children yourself? How about a subsidy for that, if we're going to talk about subsidies?
1: Well, first of all, this business, about eight weeks, going back to work eight weeks after giving birth, that's horrible. And that's why the same people who support uh, a system of federally funded daycare also support paid parental leave. Um, It's very important. Um, And I, I, I support that too. Um, I think that if somebody, you know, to say that there should be childcare available to all doesn't mean you have to do it. Um, If you want to stay home, you are welcome to do that. Um, Now in, interestingly enough, in Scandinavia, where they do the most with child care. It is pretty usual for women to go back to work. Um, in France, the child care system is so popular that even women who stay home use it. Um, because just because you stay home doesn't mean you want to, mind your child, 24-7. Yeah. <laughs> um, and it, it, become, it it's a socialization thing for kids, and it's fun for them, et cetera, et cetera. And I think here a key is that it'd be very high quality. In France, interestingly enough, uh, daycare workers and childcare workers are paid like teachers, and they're trained like teachers. It is a very respected uh, occupation. Um, it's not the way it is here, where everything having to do with children is seen as, you know, second-rate and terrible.
0: Another comment at the New York Times from a man named Tony Brzezinski. Here's a thought. Plan how you're going to take care of your family before you have children. Understand that you won't be going out to dinner three times a week because children cost money. Understand that you are going to live on a shoestring budget for a long time when you have kids. Plan your family. The government cannot solve every issue.
1: Well, uh right. I I Tony sounds like he's pretty bitter <laughs> about something. Um in fact, most people do plan their families. Most people have very small families now. Um and uh I mean, the birth rate is going down down down. Um and some people speculate that if we had more childcare, the birth rate would go up a little bit, but because it's so hard, people have sometimes even fewer children than they would like to have. Um, so you know, I'm all for planning, but you can't plan for something that isn't there. you know, um, you can't plan to put your child in high quality, affordable daycare if it doesn't exist um, so, and it should exist. that's all. Sometimes children are born who weren't planned. Uh, Nothing is, no method of birth control is perfect, and there will always be um, children who are unplanned but much loved when they arrive.
0: Okay, here's another comment. Um, I am a retiree who lives on a fixed income. Our town in New Jersey recently voted for free daycare, which resulted in a dramatic increase in the property tax. The young professionals who recently moved to our town and who make 150 k to 200 k managed to push the bill through. If you as a senior object, you are labeled as someone who is against children. That is why liberal Democrats who have taken over the party will continue to drive older voters away into the hands of the pro-capitalist Republicans.
1: Well... Um, It's true. Property taxes go up when local government does more things. Maybe property taxes aren't the best way to finance these things. I don't like it when young and old are pitted against each other because we're really all in this society together. Um, How would it be if young people said, well, Social Security, why should old people get that? Or Medicare, why should they get that? Uh, I mean, people have different needs at different times in their lives. And the same people who need daycare now will need uh, services for old pe- older people in the future, and vice versa. You know, once the system of childcare is there, tomorrow's old people will benefit from it today, when they're when they're younger. So, I mean, I think that's a much better way to think of society than than chopping it up into little little slivers and having everybody fight it out.
0: Okay, one more comment that the New York Times published. Quote. I was a daycare inspector for several years in the most affluent part of the state, and I did not encounter a single daycare center that I'd have put my own child in. Calling for high-quality daycare is easier said than done. My definition of high-quality daycare includes consistency of the caregiver year-to-year, Low ratios, requirements for more time outdoors, and not just completely artificial settings. High quality daycare is high cost, close quote.
1: Yeah, it is. And that's why we, we need to pay for it. Um, and that's what they do in France and Scandinavia. Um and in some other places that have it and now in America, you know, we don't even have high quality public school for everybody. I mean, I wonder how this guy feel would feel if he went into you know a local kindergarten or a local elementary school, let alone a local high school. Um, so I, I think we need. To, there's a broader issue about how, about care, about and about taking seriously what we have to spend to provide quality care for everyone at every stage of life. But instead, we're going to build a wall, so we don't have to think about that.
0: So, do you have any idea who might be the first of our progressive presidential candidates to adopt the demand for universal child care? We have Elizabeth Warren, Kamala Harris, Kirsten Gillibrand, Amy Klobuchar, maybe even a man, maybe Bernie?
1: Um, Well, Bernie did have this on his long list of, you know, wonderful things. Um, and maybe thanks to my article, thanks to the New York Times. And this is only one of two articles on this subject in the same issue. Um, there was another very excellent one by a sociologist named Caitlin Collins that everyone should look at. Um, I think maybe, maybe this is an issue whose time has come.
0: Katha Pollitt, she wrote about universal child care for the New York Times Sunday opinion section. They put her on the cover. Thank you, Katha.
1: Thanks, John. Thanks for having me.
0: We have a postscript. After we recorded that segment, Elizabeth Warren announced a universal child care proposal. Her plan would create a network of government-funded care centers based partly on the existing Head Start network. The employees would be paid comparably to public school teachers. Families earning less than 200% of the federal poverty level would be able to send their kids to these centers for free... Families earning more than that would be charged on a sliding scale. The maximum would be 7% of their income. And the plan would be funded by Warren's proposed wealth tax on households with more than $50 million in assets. It's the same old story. This is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on KPFK and online anytime you want it at trumpwatchpodcast.com. Now it's time to talk about Bernie's foreign policy. For a report, we turn to David Kleon. He writes for The New York Times, The Guardian, and The Nation. We reached him today in Brooklyn. David, welcome back.
2: Uh, Thanks for having me again.
0: Well, recently in December, Bernie co-sponsored the Senate resolution to cut off all U.S. support for Saudi Arabia's military campaign in Yemen. It passed with the votes of 56 senators. For that and other foreign policy issues, Bernie is relying on the advice of a guy I had never heard of until I saw your cover story in the new issue of The Nation. His name is Matt Duss. Who is Matt Duss? Where does he come from?
2: Well, it's actually a pretty complicated answer to that question. Short, Matt Duss is Bernie's foreign policy advisor. He's only been working for Bernie for about two years now. Before that, his longest gig, I guess, was the national security editor for Think Progress, which is the uh, blog affiliated with the Center for American Progress, or CAP. He did that from 2008 to 2014.
0: I learned from your piece that Matt Dasa's background includes the fact that he studied Arabic and written about Shiite political leaders in Iraq. How did he get interested in the Muslim world?
2: When he was in high school, he had a friend uh, he played in a band with who was Iraqi-American. At the time of the first Gulf War, Matt's friend had, had family in both the Iraqi and U.S. militaries. And was wow. And his whole family, which, which Dost was close with, was very, um, you know, understandably freaked out when we went to war with Saddam Hussein the first time. It really didn't happen until, I guess, he was about 28 when he went to a friend's wedding in Istanbul. dust gave a very almost lyrical description of first hearing the morning call to prayer. He was in Istanbul kind of ricocheting out across the, the urban landscape. And he said it just had a transformative effect on him. Now, Duss is of an evangelical Christian background. So it really was this kind of firsthand exposure, but it kind of lit a fire under him. And and then that was one year before 9-11. So after the 9-11 attacks, I think he he realized this wasn't just something he'd gotten really passionate about and started reading a lot about, but something he might devote his life to, understanding the Muslim world better and Trying to mitigate misunderstandings between the U.S. and the Muslim world, you know, one interesting thing about dust is, is, and that differentiates him from a lot of people in Washington, is that uh, he didn't graduate college until he was thirty-one, and that was largely in in reaction, I think, to this series of events. That that was when he finally realized what he wanted to study and what he wanted to do with his life.
0: And another part of Matt Duss's background. Uh, not so long ago, he was accused by pro-Israel people of anti-Semitism. Big topic in the news this week. What's the story there, and what does he say about it?
2: He denies that. I have, having talked to Duss a lot and having followed his writings for years, I certainly do not believe he is an anti-Semite. He finds it hurtful. But, you know, if you look at the attacks on him, they, they've come from the same group of people who kind of have a history of bad faith attacks, calling progressives and critics of Israel anti-Semites or implying it. You know, these are figures affiliated with AIPAC or the Neoconservative Foundation for Defense of Democracies or the Washington Free Beacon, which is basically a oppo rag in D.C. run by neocons. And every time, all they're really working off of is that Matt and his father and brother, all of whom have done international Christian relief work, including in the West Bank, the, all they're really going off of is that the Dutch's, uh have been very critical of the occupation, which uh, I certainly don't think makes someone an anti-Semite.
0: And how did he get to work for Bernie? I,
2: I don't know exactly who reached out. We didn't discuss that. Um, but I know when it happened, which is uh, right, basically right after the 2016 election. Um and I, I don't think it would have happened had the twenty sixteen election gone the way everyone expected that it would. When Bernie ran in twenty sixteen against Hillary Clinton, you know, it was a protest campaign focused on domestic issues. Bernie had some track record on foreign policy. He was there was a debate where he spoke up for the Palestinians, he criticized Henry Kissinger, you know, he had some connection to the Sandinistas, I think back when he was mayor of Burlington. But foreign policy was never his big thing, and he wasn't running to lay out a vision on that. Uh, and a lot of people, uh, a lot of foreign policy experts, a lot of progressive activists, were not thrilled with the Clinton-Sanders choice when it came to foreign policy, because she was seen by a lot of people, including me, as, as very hawkish, and Sanders was seen as uh, just not very interested in the subject. Uh, I should say that thus denies that Sanders is not interested in foreign policy and denies that, and, and he was quite um, insistent about this throughout the time I talked to him, that he he didn't just give Bernie a brain transplant or whatever, like Bernie has always cared about this. But I do think it's fair to say that um, they hired us, I think, to make Bernie more of a player on foreign policy uh, in the Senate and also possibly in preparation for, another presidential run. And to that end, Bernie has at least one really huge accomplishment, which Duss is widely seen as being the driver behind, which is uh, this this movement to end our support for the Saudi war in Yemen.
0: Beyond the Saudi war in Yemen, what other foreign policy issues is Bernie raising now? In, In
2: speeches that he gave, and that Matt Duss definitely had a role in drafting in late 2017 and then again in late 2018, Bernie laid out a real vision for for what foreign policy should be across a range of, of areas, which is not only something he didn't really do in uh, 2016, but it's also something that you could argue no major Democrat has done in a very long time. That The, the vision that he, he laid out is centered around oligarchy and kleptocracy and their link to authoritarianism. And he uses this to kind of draw kind of a through line from everyone, from Donald Trump to Bolsonaro in uh, Brazil, to uh, Putin in Russia, obviously, uh, to the Gulf monarchies and, and more. And, you know, his rhetoric of of the one percent and inequality and corporate elites and corruption which he's used so effectively in the US, uh, he's basically globalizing that, that approach. But also, Bernie has talked about starting a, a progressive international movement to kind of counter the right-wing populist movements that we see people like Steve Bannon trying to build across borders. And the, the major other person who's been talking about this actually, uh, including with Bernie, is Yanis Varoufakis, the former finance minister of Greece, both of them are basically trying to forge an alternative because it, it feels like we've, you know, you had the era of communism versus the free world or whatever, uh, that ended, and then you had this period of neoliberal hegemony, and now you're seeing neoliberal hegemony get challenged by the populist nationalist right, but what we haven't really seen, and we're just starting to see the beginnings of, is a like an organized, coherent, progressive International alternative to neoliberalism, and Bernie is the first person to even attempt to articulate that in 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 the Democratic Party. And I should say also, Dust. uh, One of his earliest um, forays into political activity was when he was living in Seattle uh, in the late 90s, and he got involved in anti-globalization activism. So notwithstanding his heavy focus on the Middle East, he does have some some roots on this issue.
0: What do you think he might say about Israel and the Palestinians and the occupation and AIPAC?
2: Well, Bernie has already said a lot about these issues. And actually, the spectrum of debate has been shifting leftward. Uh, and then there's been a furious reaction to it, as we've seen in the last few days with Ilan Omar. Bernie, though, I think as a result, is not the leftmost wing of I I guess, uh, the Israel-Palestine discourse right now in the mainstream, and that's actually given him room, I think, to seem a little more mainstream, even though he is the left of the status quo. So what I mean by that is neither Bernie nor Matt Duss has endorsed uh, the BDS movement, which is an increasingly uh, widespread campaign among progressive grassroots activists and a lot of people in DSA and so on, and a lot of Bernie's core supporters. I believe that the two members of the U.S. Congress who do support BDS, the only two, are the two Muslim women who were just sworn in last month, Ilan Omar and Rashida Tlaib, both of whom are, are Democrats, and both of whom, especially Omar, have come in for ferocious criticism from the Israel lobby and most of Congress, including, in Omar's case, the Democratic House leadership. Bernie has not gone as far as them. He is the leader, or he is a leader in the minority of Democrats in Congress who uh, who, who have uh, said that BDS should be legal and should not be uh, banned, and there shouldn't be restrictions like not giving federal contracts to uh, people and organizations who participate in BDS. Uh, and he and, and other Democrats running for president have made that case on, on first amendment grounds, which I personally think are totally unassailable. Like, uh, I don't see how anyone could, could, uh, support a, lo- a bill like that. And as, as for instance, Chuck Schumer does and, uh, to be, you know, a baseline liberal, it, it, it beggars belief, but, um, you know, Bernie has been outspoken on, on behalf of the rights and dignity of the Palestinians, which is something that many leading Democrats have not been. He, um, Clearly associates with people who have been very critical of Israel. I don't think he will flinch from criticizing the Netanyahu government, the occupation, the neocons, or uh, the the various establishment forces uh, that have allied with Israel. But um, you know, I would be very surprised if, if while running for president, he he decides to embrace BDS. But who knows? On Monday, uh, I saw I saw Duss um, on Twitter. I think walking a very fine line. He was sticking up for Omar and he was sort of tepidly saying that people in Omar's position, you know, need to be careful about what language they use so that they don't inadvertently invoke, you know, what sounds like anti-Semitic tropes. But but ultimately I think he was on her side and defending her, which is more than you can say of a lot of leading Democrats. And uh, of course Duff and Bernie Sanders are not precisely the same person. But uh, my my understanding is that their thinking on these issues is very similar.
0: David Kleon, his article, Who is Matt Duss?, is on the cover of the new issue of The Nation. You can read it at thenation.com. Thank you, David. Great to have you on the show.
2: Thanks for having me.
0: that's it for today's Trump Watch. I want to thank our engineer, D'Angelo Jones, our producer, Renee Reynolds. As always, we thank Ray Cooter for our theme music, Mambo Sinuendo. Hey, Trump Watchers, if you missed part of this show or of any of our recent shows, listen online anytime you want at trumpwatchpodcast.com. Trump Watch returns next week at the same time on the same station with more talk about what Trump is actually doing, not just what he's tweeting. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening.